Good morning, everyone. Uh, this is part number five in our six-part series that we've entitled First and Best. If you are just now joining us, I would encourage you to go back and check out some of our earlier messages in the series on Facebook and on YouTube, uh, because we don't want you to get the impression that this is a series about trying to twist your arm to give the church more money. This is actually a series designed to help us all become more financially stable so that we can be an example for our friends and neighbors when things around us seem to be uncertain and unpredictable. The thought is, if we can be sources of hope and confidence, we can influence others and grow the kingdom of God by making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Along uh, the way, we've said that there are three principles of physical balance that when applied to our finances can help us find stability there as well. We said that law number one was the law of the reference point. And to achieve physical balance, cheerleaders and tightrope walkers will fix their eyes on a specific target to steady themselves. And if we will keep our eyes on our money and all the different places that it goes, we can find financial stability there as well. The second law is the law of constant corrections. For physical balance, constant correction is necessary or you'll fall off your bike or the pretty cheerleader will fall and break her face. In regard to our finances, we said that if we set them and forget them, we'll quickly find ourselves on unstable ground. Unplanned expenses come up. Sometimes our hours at work get cut. Other times money just gets tight, and so Jesus' followers must be willing to make constant corrections in regard to our finances. The third law, we said, is the law of clear objectives. We need to know what the overall goal is, what the most important objective is with regard to our finances. We said that with our money, the goal is to honor God with all that we have, not just a percentage, because God owns everything. Everything that we have ultimately belongs to Him, and we are to manage what we have in a way that honors Him. Two weeks ago, Chris talked about some of the constant corrections that we need to make in regard to our debt. Webby talked last week about some of the constant corrections that we may need to make in regard to the extra that we have. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to spend our time talking about the constant corrections that we may need to consider making in the area of our spending. Do you know what the largest contributor to financial imbalance in the area of spending is? You guess? It's discontentment. Discontentment is basically the dissatisfaction we have with what we have. Think about this. You love your iPhone, right? You probably have a favorite app on your iPhone that you uh, couldn't live without. It makes your life so much easier. Uh, in fact, you'd probably really struggle to go back to the phone that you had in 2005. We love our iPhone until we become aware of the new one that's coming out. Once we become aware of the new iPhone and all its new features, or the new model Keurig and all its fancy bells and whistles, or the new refrigerator that can actually order our groceries online for us, or plans leak on the internet about the new car that's coming out that actually drives themselves, suddenly we're no longer happy 
with our phones, our coffee makers, our refrigerators, or our cars. We were happy with the house we lived in until we stayed at that beach house in Florida. You know, the one with the marble countertops and the super high ceilings and the one that had the amazing location on the beach. We were satisfied with the toilet that we had until we saw that one that will actually flush itself. And anybody with kids know that that's an investment worth making. We were satisfied to watch the game on our TV until we got invited over to our friend's house and his screen was bigger and the image was more clear and vibrant. It actually felt like Bobby Knight was throwing the chair at you watching the game on his TV. We were fine until we became aware of other options. Then somehow we became consumed and fixated with how do I get that? How do I get the new one? But let me ask you a question. Does any person in your family uh, hold on to like old t-shirts and socks? I mean, are there, are there any, anybody in, in your family that will continue to wear t-shirts and socks even after there's kind of like really big holes in them? Like to the point where mm, they're wearing socks and t-shirts that have more hole than actual fabric, all right? Does anyone in your family possess that kind of mentality? It's kind of funny that generally speaking, when that person finally decides to replace those old t-shirts or those old socks, they repurpose them into rags to be used in the garage or you know something to wipe down cars with. I know for a fact that growing up, we were using old t-shirts in my grandpa's garage to wipe down the lawnmower and clean off our bikes and things like that. Many of our grandparents, they were just raised at a time when you didn't replace things until they broke. And when you did replace something, when you did finally break down and buy new t-shirts, you repurposed the old ones that you were replacing. Today, we don't really use the word replace in our vocabulary anymore. In fact, the word replace has been exchanged for the word upgrade. We don't replace our iPhones. We upgrade them. We don't replace our cars. We upgrade. We don't wait for them to fail or break or wear out. We upgrade beforehand. In our culture, there's a real tension between replacing something when it breaks versus upgrading to the newest, hottest model. I say that there's a tension, but the fact is we are becoming more and more of a disposable culture. The replace mentality is fading away, and the upgrade mentality is becoming more and more the norm. And this is fueled by the fact that we are all more and more aware of the options that we have and less and less content with what we actually have. And here's why this is dangerous. Our desire for bigger, faster, shinier, thinner, lighter, or whatever is actually an appetite. And here's the thing about an appetite. An appetite is only satisfied for a finite period of time. Think about this. You don't eat a single meal and then never hunger again. No, we eat until we're satisfied. Then we stop until we're hungry again, until we have an appetite. The fact is, our appetite 
are, are they're never fully satisfied. They're, they just constantly grow. A few years back, Amanda and I decided to buy uh, a new car for her. Uh, we wanted something that was safer and more dependable. Uh, we bought a used car, uh, but it had all the features we wanted. It had a sunroof for the summertime. It had heated seats and all-wheel drive for the, the wintertime. Um, and actually, I had just finished reading a book on negotiating, so we got the car at a really good price. We were definitely at a, a price point that I was comfortable spending uh, on. But you know what? Almost none of that matters today. That car filled our appetite in 2016, but now that car is over 10 years old. And if I'm going to be honest with you, it's needed some work pretty regularly. There's a definite hunger in our household for something new. Sure, it runs, the windows still work, the heats, uh, the seats still get hot, but in our house, we are constantly discussing upgrade now or wait until the car needs to be replaced. And here's where the rubber meets the road, pun intended. On the surface, it might seem like the way to handle an appetite is to feed it so that it will go away. But in reality, the more we feed an appetite, the more it grows and the bigger it becomes. If I ate a donut every time I had a craving for one or got pizza every time that it sounded good, uh, my health would be in trouble pretty quickly. My appetite for pizza and donuts would put my physical health in serious, serious jeopardy. Appetites are not always addressed best by feeding them when the desire strikes. In fact, appetites are often addressed best by starving them. Think about it like this. It's way easier to say no to a soft drink if you haven't had one in a month than it is to say no to having a soft drink if you had one yesterday. The longer we go, the easier it becomes to say no. Let's say that with me. In regards to our appetites, the longer we go, the easier it becomes to say no. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, uh, saying this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Think about all the things that our culture promotes as great gain. Faster cars, bigger houses, smart TVs, intelligent refrigerators. Those things are all nice, to be sure, and many of them make our lives easier. But if we can't take those things with us when we die, are they really a great gain? Paul is telling Timothy that godliness, you know, the qualities and beliefs and actions that imitate Jesus, combined with contentment or the ability to be satisfied with what we have, is a great gain. Paul is using financial language to communicate how followers of Jesus get and stay rich. The key is our wealth is not tied to our stuff. It's tied to how closely we resemble Jesus and how satisfied we are with what we have. If great gain was tied to our stuff, then when we die and it's all said and done, we wouldn't have gained anything, right? Well, why is that? Well, Paul explains in verse 7. He says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. If gain were all about our stuff, 
and all that stuff stays here, then when we die, we would have taken nothing of value with us into eternity. Then Paul challenges us to rethink what we value and what it looks like to be satisfied. He says this in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Okay, let's just take a second and let's just pause right there for one second. Do we really believe that? I mean, truly, do we honestly believe that if God is meeting our needs, we have enough to satisfy us? Or do we long so much for newer and better and bigger and faster and shinier that we rob ourselves of contentment and we strip this passage of its value? Let's deconstruct this a little bit. Let me ask you, at what point in your life were you the most content? When were you burdened the least by stress and worry and fear? Most of us probably wouldn't say today, right? Even though most of us are probably living in a nicer house now than, say, when we got married, we would probably say we're more stressed now than then. We would probably say that even though we're driving nicer cars today than we were when we first started driving, we're no less stressed or fearful. The fact is, the vast majority of us were probably less stressed, less worried, and less fearful when we had less stuff. When we sat on hand-me-down furniture and our cabinets were filled with mismatched pots and pans, we slept easier in our smaller house, and somehow we were able to make our paychecks go even further when they were much smaller. It's a lot like what Puffy and Mace said, more money we come across, the more problems we see. Paul takes this idea of more money, more problems, and he just puts it in context for us. He says, you want happiness and joy? Okay, that's great. It's not tied to your stuff, that's for sure. Happiness and joy are found in godliness and contentment. If you want to find true happiness and live with unparalleled joy, imitate Jesus and find a way to be satisfied with what you have. Verse 9, those who want to get rich, or in the Greek, Paul is literally saying those who want to live richly. Okay, so those who want to live richly fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Latrell Sprewell was an outstanding basketball player in the 90s and early 2000s. Through uh, the course of his career, he earned over $100 million and he was a four-time NBA All-Star. His career, however, came to an abrupt end when Sprewell, at the age of 34, refused to agree to a three-year, $21 million contract with the Minnesota Timberwolves. After refusing the contract, Spree was quoted as saying, I got kids to feed. Today, Sprewell's net worth is $50,000. The traps associated with riches are real and they are dangerous, but it's not just athletes who run the risk of losing big money and falling into such traps. Do you remember Ed McMahon? Ed used to uh, 
send around oversized checks in sweepstakes prizes, but Johnny Carson's longtime pal Ed seemed to have trouble hanging on to his own money. You see, in 2008, lenders had to go after McMahon for $644,000 that he owed on a $4.8 million home loan. You want to know how he went from riches to rags? Well, Ed McMahon explained this to Larry King in an interview. He said, quote, Well, if you spend more money than you make, you know what happens. A couple of divorces thrown in, a few things like that. You want everything to be perfect, but that combination and the economy, I have a little injury, I have a situation, and it all came together. Fact is, we may be inclined to mock these guys and their misfortunes or wonder how anyone could go through so much money so quickly. But the point is, if we do that, we'll miss the point altogether. The point is, anyone trying to live richly, according to Paul, is walking into a trap. You and I need to be just as cautious as anyone else. We say things like, it's just a few hundred dollars more a month to upgrade, and then we walk into a trap. Or we say things like, "If, if everything goes right, we'll be able to afford it. But let's be honest, how often do everything go just right? Anyone who's focused on more and more or bigger and bigger will fall into this trap. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is a verse that gets butchered frequently. Money isn't evil, but the love of money is. And the fact is, nobody watching this morning would say, I love money. In in fact, we would probably say, I like money. Money's nice. Money's helpful. Money's, you know, comforting. It's It's a good, it's a good tool. But if our identity is tied to how much money we make or our security is found in how much money we have, truth is we probably love money. Paul continues saying, Some people eager for more money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Countless numbers of men and women walk away from their faith, from their churches, from a growing relationship with Jesus every single day, not because of bad teaching, not because of poor theology, but because they got distracted by stuff and wandered away. And Paul says they actually pierced themselves. Harm wasn't done to them. Harm was done by them. Verse 11, but you, man of God, Flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Followers of Jesus are not to wander around. We are to flee our discontent and pursue a life like Jesus's. This won't happen by accident. We won't stumble into fleeing from discontent, and we won't stumble into pursuing a life like Jesus's. It will have to be Uh, the product of intentionality. It'll be the product of discipline. We'll have to starve our appetites for the things that are going to do us long-term harm. Followers of Jesus won't put themselves in situations where they're going to walk into a trap. They flee the trap and chase after Jesus. Paul closes this passage by saying this in verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life 
that is truly life. If we're going to be balanced, then we have to be willing to make constant corrections. And one correction that we may need to make is our appetite for more. Our dissatisfaction with what we have and our hunger for newer, shinier, bigger, better, faster is only going to leave us financially unsteady and ultimately out of step with Jesus. Instead, we should be like Jesus and imitate him. We should be content with what we have and also be looking for ways to help others. This kind of living is an investment on the eternal. This kind of living is the way to truly be alive. Our discontentment is defanged when we shift our attention from what we don't have to what others need. That's how Jesus lived, and that's how we'll make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, by shifting our attention from what we don't have to what others need, because godliness with contentment is of great gain. I want to thank you for worshiping with us today. Uh, I want to thank you um, for just spending some time looking into God's Word and seeking to apply it to your life. If you're thinking about following Jesus and you have questions about that, we would love to help you take your next step with Him. You can email us at info at lincolnhillschristian.com or you can send us a private message on Facebook. Again, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. I'm going to pray and uh, then we're going to sing one last song. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the example that you give us in the scriptures. Thank you for the warnings that you provide us uh, in living in a way that honors you. Father, help us make the most of what we have and the opportunities that we have, not for our glory, but for yours. Father, thank you for providing all that you have. Help us to find contentment in what you've provided. Help us to stop focusing on ourselves and focus on your son. We love you and pray all these things in Jesus' name.